Chapter Seven, Part Six, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, The Winter Journey, Part Six. It was Birdie's picture hat which made the trouble next day. What you think of that for a hat, sir? I heard him say to Scott a few days before we started, holding it out much as Lucille displays her latest Paris model. Scott looked at it quietly for a time. "'I'll tell you when you come back, Birdie,' he said. It was a complicated affair, with all kinds of nose-guards and buttons and lanyards. He thought he was going to set it to suit the wind much as he would set the sails of a ship. We spent a long time with our housewives before this and other trips, for everybody has their own ideas as to how to alter their clothing for the best. When finished some look neat, like Bill, others baggy, like Scott or Seaman Evans, others rough and ready, like Oates and Bowers, a few perhaps more rough than ready, and I will not mention names. Anyway, Birdie's hat became improper immediately it was well iced up. When we got a little light in the morning we found we were a little north of the two patches of moraine on Terra. Though we did not know it, we were on the point where the pressure runs up against terror, and we could dimly see that we were right up against something. We started to try and clear it, but soon had an enormous ridge blotting out the moraine and half-terror, rising like a great hill on our right. Bill said the only thing was to go right on, and hope it would lower. All the time, however, there was a bad feeling that we might be putting any number of ridges between us and the mountain. After a while we tried to cross this one, but had to turn back for crevasses, both Bill and I putting a leg down. We went on for about twenty minutes and found a lower place, and turned to rise up it diagonally, and reach the top. Just over the top Birdie went right down a crevasse which was about wide enough to take him. He was out of sight and out of reach from the surface, hanging in his harness. Bill went for his harness, I went for the bow of the sledge. Bill told me to get the alpine rope, and Birdie directed from below what we could do. We could not possibly haul him up as he was, for the sides of the crevasse were soft, and he could not help himself. My helmet was so frozen up, wrote Bowers, that my head was encased in a solid block of ice, and I could not look down without inclining my whole body. As a result, Bill stumbled one foot into a crevasse, and I landed in it with both mine, even as I shouted a warning. The bridge gave way, and down I went. Fortunately, our sledge harness is made with a view to resisting this sort of thing, and there I hung with the bottomless pit below, and the ice-crusted sides alongside, so narrow that to step over it would have been quite easy had I been able to see it. Bill said, "'What do you want?' I asked for an alpine rope with a bowline for my foot, and taking up first the bowline and then my harness, they got me out. Meanwhile, on the surface, I lay over the crevasse and gave Birdie the bowline. He put it on his foot, then he raised his foot, giving me some slack. I held the rope while he raised himself on his foot, thus giving Bill some slack on the harness. Bill then held the harness, allowing Birdie to raise his foot and give me some slack again. We got him up inch by inch, our fingers getting bitten, for the temperature was minus forty-six degrees. Afterwards we often used this way of getting people out of crevasses, and it was a wonderful piece of presence of mind that it was invented, so far as I know on the spur of the moment, by a frozen man hanging in one himself. In front of us we could see another ridge, and we did not know how many lay beyond that. Things looked pretty bad. Bill took a long lead on the alpine rope, and we got down our present difficulty all right. This method of the leader being on a long trace in front we all agreed to be very useful. From this moment our luck changed, and everything went for us to the end. When we went out on the sea ice the whole experience was over in a few days. 
Hut Point was always in sight, and there was daylight. I always had the feeling that the whole series of events had been brought about by an extraordinary run of accidents, and that after a certain stage it was quite beyond our powers to guide the course of them. When on the way to Cape Crozier the moon suddenly came out of the cloud to show us a great crevasse which would have taken us all with our sledge without any difficulty, I felt that we were not to go under this trip after such a deliverance. When we had lost our tent, and there was a very great balance of probability that we should never find it again, and we were lying out in the blizzard in our bags, I saw that we were face to face with a long fight against cold which we could not have survived. I cannot write how helpless I believed we were to help ourselves, and how we were brought out of a very terrible series of experiences. When we started back I had a feeling that things were going to change for the better, and this day I had a distinct idea that we were to have one more bad experience, and that after that we could hope for better things. By running along the hollow we cleared the pressure ridges, and continued all day up and down, but met no crevasses. Indeed we met no more crevasses and no more pressure. I think it was upon this day that a wonderful glow stretched over the barrier edge from Cape Crozier. At the base it was the most vivid crimson it is possible to imagine, shading upwards through every shade of red to light green, and so into a deep blue sky. It is the most vivid red I have ever seen in the sky. It was minus forty-nine degrees in the night, and we were away early in minus forty-seven degrees. By midday we were rising Terra Point, opening Erebus rapidly, and got the first really light day, though the sun would not appear over the horizon for another month. I cannot describe what a relief the light was to us. We crossed the point outside our former track, and saw inside us the ridges where we had been blizzed for three days on our outward journey. The minimum was minus sixty-six degrees the next night, and we were now back in the windless bite of barrier with its soft snow, low temperatures, fogs and mists, and lingering settlements of the inside crusts. Saturday and Sunday, the 29th and 30th, we plugged on across this waste, iced up as usual but always with Castle Rock getting bigger. Sometimes it looked like fog or wind, but it always cleared away. We were getting weak, how weak we can only realise now, but we got in good marches, though slow, days when we did four and a half, seven and a quarter, six and three quarters, six and a half, seven and a half miles. On our outward journey we had been relaying and getting forward about four and a half miles a day at this point. The surface which we had dreaded so much was not so sandy or soft as when we had come out, and the settlements were more marked. These are caused by a crust falling under your feet. Generally the area involved is some twenty yards or so around you, and the surface falls through an airspace for two or three inches with a soft crush, which may at first make you think that there are crevasses about. In the region where we now travelled, they were much more pronounced than elsewhere, and one day when Bill was inside the tent lighting the primus, I put my foot into a hole that I had dug. This started a big settlement. Sledge, tent and all of us dropped about a foot, and the noise of it ran away for miles and miles. We listened to it until we began to get too cold. It must have lasted a full three minutes. In the pauses of our marching we halted in our harnesses the ropes of which lay slack in the powdery snow. We stood panting with our backs against the mountainous mass of frozen gear, which was our load. There was no wind, at any rate, no more than light airs. Our breath crackled as it froze. There was no unnecessary conversation. I don't know why our tongues never got frozen, but all my teeth, the nerves of which had been killed, split to pieces. We had been going perhaps three hours since lunch. "'How are your feet, Cherry?' from Bill. "'Very cold.' "'That's all right, so are mine.' 
We didn't worry to ask Birdie, he never had a frostbitten foot from start to finish. Half an hour later, as we marched, Bill would ask the same question. I tell him that all feeling has gone. Bill still has some feeling in one of his, but the other is lost. He settled we had better camp, another ghastly night ahead. We started to get out of our harnesses, while Bill, before doing anything else, would take the fur mitts from his hands, carefully shape any soft parts as they froze. Generally, however, our mitts did not thaw on our hands, and lay them on the snow in front of him. Two dark dots. His proper fur mitts were lost when the igloo roof went. These were the delicate dog-skin linings we had in addition, beautiful things to look at and to feel when new, excellent when dry, to turn the screws of a theodolite, but too dainty for straps and lanyards. Just now I don't know what he could have done without them. Working with our woollen half-mitts and mitts on our hands all the time, and our fur mitts over them when possible, we gradually got the buckles undone, and spread the green canvas floor-cloth on the snow. This was also fitted to be used as a sail, but we never could have rigged a sail on this journey. The shovel and bamboos, with the lining itself lined with ice, lashed to them, were packed on the top of the load, and were now put on the snow until wanted. Our next job was to lift our three sleeping-bags one by one onto the floor-cloth. They covered it, bulging over the sides, those obstinate coffins which were all our life to us. One of us is off by now, to nurse his fingers back. The cooker was unlashed from the top of the instrument box. Some parts of it were put on the bags with the primus, methylated spirit can, matches and so forth, others left to be filled with snow later. Taking a pole in each hand, we three spread the bamboos over the hole. All right, down, from Bill and we lowered them gently on to the soft snow, that they might not sink too far. The ice on the inner lining of the tent was formed mostly from the steam of the cooker. This we had been unable to beat or chip off in the past, and we were now, truth to tell, past worrying about it. The little ventilator in the top, made to let out this steam, had been tied up in order to keep in all possible heat. Then over with the outer cover, and for one of us the third worst job of the day was to begin. The worst job was to get into our bags. The second, or equal worst, was to lie in them for six hours. We had brought it down to six. This third worst was to get the primus lighted, and a meal on the way. As cook of the day, you took the broken metal framework, all that remained of our candlestick, and got yourself with difficulty into the funnel which formed the door. The enclosed space of the tent seemed much colder than the outside air. You tried three or four match-boxes, and no match would strike. Almost desperate, you asked for a new box to be given you from the sledge, and got a light from this because it had not yet been in the warmth, so called, of the tent. The candle hung by a wire from the cap of the tent. It would be tedious to tell of the times we had getting the primus alight, and the lanyards of the weekly food bag unlashed. Probably by now the other two men have dug in the tent, squared up outside, filled and passed in the cooker, set the thermometer under the sledge, and so forth. There were always one or two odd jobs which wanted doing as well, but you may be sure they came in as soon as possible when they heard the primus hissing, and saw the glow of the light inside. Birdie made a bottom for the cooker out of an empty biscuit tin, to take the place of the part which was blown away. On the whole this was a success, but we had to hold it steady, on Bill's sleeping-bag, for the flat frozen bags spread all over the floor-space. Cooking was a longer business now. Someone whacked out the biscuit, and the cook put the ration of pemmican into the inner cooker, which was by now half full of water. As opportunity offered, we got out of our day, and into our night foot gear. 
fleecy camel-hair stockings and fur boots. In the dim light we examined our feet for frostbite. I do not think it took us less than an hour to get a hot meal to our lips, pemmican followed by hot water in which we soaked our biscuits. For lunch we had tea and biscuits, for breakfast pemmican, biscuits and tea. We could not have managed more food-bags. Three were bad enough, and the lashings of everything were like wire. The lashing of the tent door, however, was the worst, and it had to be tied tightly, especially if it was blowing. In the early days we took great pains to brush rime from the tent before packing it up, but we were long past that now. The hooch got down into our feet, we nursed back frost-bites, and we were all the warmer for having got our dry foot-gear on before supper. Then we started to get into our bags. Birdie's bag fitted him beautifully, though perhaps it would have been a little small with an eider-down inside. He must have had a greater heat supply than other men, for he never had serious trouble with his feet, while ours were constantly frostbitten. He slept, I should be afraid to say how much, longer than we did, even in these last days. It was a pleasure, lying awake practically all night, to hear his snores. He turned his bag inside out, from fur to skin, and skin to fur, many times during the journey, and thus got rid of a lot of moisture which came out as snow, or actual knobs of ice. When we did turn our bags, the only way was to do so directly we turned out, and even then you had to be quick before the bag froze. Getting out of the tent at night, it was quite a race to get back to your bag before it hardened. Of course this was in the lowest temperatures. We could not burn our bags, and we tried putting the lighted primus into them to thaw them out, but this was not very successful. Before this time, when it was very cold, we lighted the primus in the morning, while we were still in our bags, and in the evening we kept it going until we were just getting, or had got, the mouths of our bags levered open, but returning we had no oil for such luxuries until the last day or two. I do not believe that any man, however sick he is, has a much worse time than we had in those bags shaking with cold until our backs would almost break. One of the added troubles which came to us on our return was the sodden condition of our hands in our bags at night. We had to wear our mitts and half-mitts, and they were as wet as they could be. When we got up in the morning we had washerwomen's hands, white, crinkled, sodden. That was an unhealthy way to start the day's work. We really wanted some bags of sanigrass, for hands as well as feet one of the blessings of that kind of bag being that you can shake the moisture from it, but we only had enough for our wretched feet. The horrors of that return journey are blurred to my memory, and I know they were blurred to my body at the time. I think this applies to all of us, for we were much weakened and callous. The day we got down to the penguins I had not cared whether I fell into a crevasse or not. We had been through a great deal since then. I know that we slept on the march, for I woke up when I bumped against Birdie, and Birdie woke when he bumped against me. I think Bill, steering out in front, managed to keep awake. I know we fell asleep if we waited in the comparatively warm tent when the Primus was alight, with our pannikins or the Primus in our hands. I know that our sleeping-bags were so full of ice that we did not worry if we spilt water or hoosh over them, as they lay on the floor-cloth, when we cooked on them with our maimed cooker. They were so bad that we never rolled them up in the usual way when we got out of them in the morning, we opened their mouths as much as possible before they froze, and hoisted them more or less flat onto the sledge. All three of us helped to raise each bag which looked rather like a squashed coffin, and was probably a good deal harder. I know that if it was only minus forty degrees when we camped for the night, we considered quite seriously that we were going to have a warm one, and that when we got up in the morning, if the temperature was in the minus sixties, 
we did not inquire what it was. The day's march was bliss compared to the night's rest, and both were awful. We were about as bad as men can be, and do good travelling, but I never heard a word of complaint, nor, I believe, an oath, and I saw self-sacrifice standing every test. Always we were getting nearer home, and we were doing good marches. We were going to pull through. It was only a matter of sticking this for a few more days. Six, five, four, three perhaps now, if we were not blizzed. Our main hut was behind that ridge where the mist was always forming and blowing away, and there was Castle Rock. We might even see Observation Hill tomorrow, and the Discovery Hut furnished and trim was behind it, and they would have sent some dry sleeping-bags from Cape Evans to greet us there. We reckoned our troubles over at the barrier edge, and assuredly it was not far away. You've got it in the neck, stick it, you've got it in the neck. It was always running in my head. And we did stick it. How good the memories of those days are, with jokes about Birdie's picture hat, with songs we remembered off the gramophone, with ready words of sympathy for frostbitten feet, with generous smiles for poor jests, with suggestions of happy beds to come. We did not forget the please and thank you, which mean much in such circumstances, and all the little links with decent civilization which we could still keep going. I'll swear there was still a grace about us when we staggered in. And we kept our tempers, even with God. We might reach Hut Point tonight. We were burning more oil now, that one gallon tin had lasted as well. And burning more candle too, at one time we feared they would give out. A hell of a morning we had, minus fifty-seven degrees in our present state, but it was calm, and the barrier edge could not be much farther now. The surface was getting harder. There were a few wind-blown furrows. The crust was coming up to us. The sledge was dragging easier. We always suspected the barrier sloped downwards hereabouts. Now the hard snow was on the surface, peeping out like great inverted basins on which we slipped, and our feet became warmer for not sinking into soft snow. Suddenly we saw a gleam of light in a line of darkness running across our course. It was the barrier edge. We were all right now. We ran the sledge off a snowdrift onto the sea ice, with the same cold stream of air flowing down it which wrecked my hands five weeks ago, pushed out of this, camped and had a meal. The temperature had already risen to minus forty-three degrees. We could almost feel it getting warmer as we went round Cape Armitage on the last three miles. We managed to haul our sledge up the ice foot, and dug the drift away from the door. The old hut struck us as fairly warm. Bill was convinced that we ought not to go into the warm hut at Cape Evans when we arrived there, tomorrow night. We ought to get back to warmth gradually, live in a tent outside, or in the annex for a day or two. But I'm sure we never meant to do it. Just now Hut Point did not prejudice us in favour of such abstinence. It was just as we had left it. There was nothing sent down for us there, no sleeping bags, nor sugar. But there was plenty of oil. Inside the hut we pitched a dry tent left there since depot journey days, set two primuses going in it, sat dozing in our bags, and drank cocoa without sugar so thick that next morning we were gorged with it. We were very happy, falling asleep between each mouthful, and after several hours discussed schemes of not getting into our bags at all. But someone would have to keep the primus going to prevent frostbite, and we could not trust ourselves to keep awake. Bill and I tried to sing a part song. Finally we sopped our way into our bags. We only stuck them three hours, and thankfully turned out at three a.m., and were ready to pack up when we heard the wind come away. It was no good, so we sat in our tent and dozed again. The wind dropped at nine-thirty. 
we were off at eleven. We walked out into what seemed to us a blaze of light. It was not until the following year that I understood that a great part of such twilight as there is in the latter part of the winter was cut off from us by the mountains under which we travelled. Now, with nothing between us and the northern horizon below which lay the sun, we saw as we had not seen for months, and the iridescent clouds that day were beautiful. We just pulled for all we were worth, and did nearly two miles an hour. For two miles a baddish salt surface, then big undulating hard sastrugia and good going. We slept as we walked. We had done eight miles by 4pm, and were past Glacier Tongue. We lunched there. As we began to gather our gear together to pack up for the last time, Bill said quietly, "'I want to thank you two for what you have done. I couldn't have found two better companions, and what is more I never shall.' I am proud of that. Antarctic exploration is seldom as bad as you imagine, seldom as bad as it sounds, but this journey had beggared our language. No words could express its horror. We trudged on for several more hours, and it grew very dark. There was a discussion as to where Cape Evans lay. We rounded it at last. It must have been ten or eleven o'clock, and it was possible that someone might see us as we pulled towards the hut. "'Spread out well,' said Bill, "'and they will be able to see that there are three men.' But we pulled along the cape, over the tide-crack, up the bank to the very door of the hut without a sound. No noise from the stable, nor the bark of a dog from the snowdrifts above us. We halted, and stood there trying to get ourselves and one another out of our frozen harnesses, the usual long job. The door opened. "'Good God! Here's the Crozier party!' said a voice, and disappeared. Thus ended the worst journey in the world. And now the reader will ask what became of the three penguins' eggs for which three human lives had been risked three hundred times a day, and three human frames strained to the utmost extremity of human endurance. Let us leave the Antarctic for a moment, and conceive ourselves in the year 1913, in the Natural History Museum in South Kensington. I had written to say that I would bring the eggs at this time. Present myself, C.G., the sole survivor of the three, with first or doorstep custodian of the sacred eggs. I did not take a verbatim report of his welcome, but the spirit of it may be dramatised as follows. First custodian. Who are you? What do you want? This ain't an egg shop. What call have you to come meddling with our eggs? Do you want me to put the police on to you? Is this the crocodile's egg you're after? I don't know nothing about no eggs. You best speak to Mr. Brown. It's him that varnishes the eggs. I resort to Mr. Brown, who ushers me into the presence of the chief custodian, a man of scientific aspect, with two manners, one affably courteous for a person of importance, I guess a naturalist Rothschild at the least, with whom he is conversing, and the other extraordinarily offensive, even for an official man of science for myself. I announce myself with becoming modesty as the bearer of the penguins' eggs, and proffer them. The chief custodian takes them into custody without a word of thanks, and turns to the person of importance to discuss them. I wait. The temperature of my blood rises. The conversation proceeds for what seems to me a considerable period. Suddenly the chief custodian notices my presence, and seems to resent it. Chief custodian. You needn't wait. Heroic explorer. I should like to have a receipt for the eggs, if you please. Chief custodian. It is not necessary. It is all right. You needn't wait. Heroic explorer. I should like to have a receipt. 
but by this time the chief custodian's attention is again devoted wholly to the person of importance. Feeling that to persist in overhearing their conversation would be an indelicacy, the heroic explorer politely leaves the room, and establishes himself on a chair in a gloomy passage outside, where he whiles away the time by rehearsing in his imagination how he will tell off the chief custodian when the person of importance retires. But this the person of importance shows no sign of doing, and the explorer's thoughts and intentions become darker and darker. As the day wears on, minor officials, passing to and from the presence, look at him doubtfully and ask his business. The reply is always the same. I am waiting for a receipt for some penguin's eggs. At last it becomes clear from the explorer's expression that what he is really waiting for is not to take a receipt but to commit murder. Presumably this is reported to the destined victim. At all events the receipt finally comes, and the explorer goes his way with it, feeling that he has behaved like a perfect gentleman, but so very dissatisfied with that vapid consolation that for hours he continues his imaginary rehearsals of what he would have liked to have done to the custodian, mostly with his boots, by way of teaching him manners. Some time after this I visited the Natural History Museum with Captain Scott's sister. After a slight preliminary skirmish, in which we convinced a minor custodian that the specimens brought by the expedition from the Antarctic did not include the moths we found preying on some of them, Miss Scott expressed a wish to see the penguins' eggs. Thereupon the minor custodians flatly denied that any such eggs were in existence or in their possession. Now Miss Scott was her brother's sister, and she showed so little disposition to take this lying down that I was glad to get her away with no worse consequences than a profanely emphasised threat on my part that if we did not receive ample satisfaction in writing within twenty-four hours as to the safety of the eggs, England would reverberate with the tale. The ultimatum was effectual, and due satisfaction was forthcoming in time. But I was relieved when I learned later that they had been entrusted to Professor Ashton for the necessary microscopic examination. But he died before he could approach the task, and the eggs passed into the hands of Professor Cossar Ewart of Edinburgh University. His report is as follows. End of chapter 7, part 6